interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. I've certainly come to the uh, point in the conference where I'd much rather listen to Drew Trotter and Father Smith and graduate students like Aaron, but um, I guess my assignment is to keep going. Um, What I would like to do in the uh, really quite shortly and inadequately, uh, underscore inadequately, is an experiment that attempts to move out from a central teaching in classical evangelical conceptions of salvation to academic implications. This is an experiment, uh, and I'll say some things I'm sure uh, hopelessly incorrect, hopelessly uh, befuddled, but um, I, I think that experiments like this are useful because of the level of theological discernment and Christian desire that now exists broadly in the academic world to move beyond talk about the integration of faith and learning to attempting it. So the attempt is to think about the Christian doctrine of the atonement, particularly as formulated by evangelical Protestants, and I realize there's debate in the Christian world over the concept of atonement, But think about the doctrine of atonement, particularly keyed, and in my case I'll use, the book by John R. W. Stott, The Cross of Christ. So what I'd like to do is to summarize quite rapidly the the John Stott approach to the atonement found in this book, then to step back and say, if these things are so, what might be implications for for academic life? So in Stott's summary of the work of redemption, there is first an image from the temple, propitiation. There's an image from the marketplace, redemption. There's an image from the law courts, justification. There's an image from the household, reconciliation. So the atonement, the bringing back of humanity to God through the cross of Christ can be described as propitiation, can be described as redemption, can be described as justification, can be described as reconciliation. The, the, the one of these metaphors that, are, that needs the most explanation, maybe even defense in this day, is propitiation, because it's often characterized as um, a, a blood sacrifice appeasing an angry God. That caricature is not completely wrong, but it is substantially mistaken. I'll quote just a page or two from the cross of Christ. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. God himself is at the heart of our answer to all three questions about the divine propitiation. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated, but it is also God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating 
and God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. So, propitiation, rightly understood, shows God at the center of the drama of redemption, acting toward us both to save sinners and glorify himself. The four metaphors about atonement are joined together into the larger category of substitution. In In the cross, Christ triumphs, but Christ also stands in. Once again, a quotation. Moved by the perfection of his holy love, God in Christ substituted himself for us as sinners. That is the heart of the cross. On the one hand, God was in Christ reconciling. On the other hand, God made Christ to be sin for us. How can God have been in Christ when he made him to be sin is the ultimate mystery of the atonement. But we must hold both affirmations tenaciously and never expand either in such a way as to contradict the other. In other words, it's important God was in Christ reconciling, God made Christ to be sin. So assuming that Stott is correct in this description of atonement, and that holding to to a picture of the substitutionary atonement is true, what difference might it make for Christian academics who believe these things? Here I say and probably say a couple times that in general the realm of the natural sciences may be affected less directly by thought moving from atonement to scholarship than the human disciplines. We talked about this a long time at Wheaton College where there was actually a requirement for tenure that people had to write some kind of a paper explaining how the Christian faith bore on what they did, which is a good good exercise. It was a very, very worthwhile enterprise, except when the mathematicians were in view. (laughs) And they did it, but it was was always a pain. And it's actually not too easy to talk to the chemists or the physicists. A little bit easier for the biologists, but not that much easier. But they did it, and it was a requirement, so people paid attention. But I've actually come, now that Wheaton College is no longer paying my salary, to think that uh, might not need the same kind of requirements for the physical scientist because the Christian problem of studying the, the physical world is not in the physical world. The Christian problem of studying the physical world is in the person who's studying it. Whereas if you're doing history or psychology or sociology, philosophy, the problems needing redemption are in the researcher, but the problems involving redemption are also in what you're studying. This does not mean that physicists and chemists, physical scientists in the room can leave, because at Cornell you wouldn't have any audience left. <laughs> but but it, 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 it does seem to me there's a difference. And there are other Christian doctrines, like creation, like creation groaning, that are more directly relevant in the physical sciences. Well, but, but let me summarize. To move from atonement theology to learning more generally, we begin with the fact of substitution. Jesus Christ stands in for humanity as the paschal victim. Jesus Christ, as the glorified Son of God, takes humanity with him into the presence of God.
But second is the magnitude and deathly seriousness of human sinfulness. Atonement presupposes lost creatures. And creatures are lost because of alienation from God caused by sin. Now, I happen to think that the Christian doctrine of atonement and even a very stiff Christian doctrine of atonement actually presupposes very positive implications about the dignity of the human condition. Atonement takes sin very seriously, but also makes a powerful statement about human worth. The doctrine of atonement says human beings are worth the death of the Son of God. Third is the element of atonement about divine initiation. What's most important for humanity begins with God's grace. A fourth element is a strong narrative movement. In Christian theology, we can talk about the tragedy of the cross, but we can also talk about the comedy of the cross. And whether we talk about the tragedy of the cross or the comedy of the cross, we've got a beginning, middle, and end. The end reverses expectations that were built into the beginning and the middle. But what is common is that uh, Christian salvation is not primarily a matter of categories arranged in proper order, but of events taking place in time. If there's a philosopher here, I'll get asked about the timelessness of God, and I'll ask another philosopher to handle that question. <laughs> a fifth element of atonement theology is a very strong awareness of complexity and multiplicity. The story of how God in Christ rescues sinners is in one sense a very simple story. God chose to do it and did it. But examining it, trying to unfold it, there are many, many layers of complexity. On the human level, this is again John Stott, on the human level, Judas gave him up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers, who crucified him. But on the divine level, the Father gave him up, and he gave himself up. This complexity shows quickly in things like Peter's sermon on Pentecost. You, sinful people, crucified the one whom God, before all times, had ordained for crucifixion. Like this very brief statement by pastor and theologian Douglas Webster, at the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At the death of the Son of God, there was darkness at noon. So, thinking about the atonement has to think about this kind of complexity. The cross was an act simultaneously of punishment and amnesty, severity and grace, justice and mercy. What was the cross? Pure mercy, pure justice, pure amnesty, pure punishment. Yes. Who am I? Evil that sent Christ to the cross. I it was, so many of you will sing in Lent, I who was who crucified thee. But the object of redemption are those who crucified 
or sent Christ to the cross. So, if as Christians we affirm the fact of substitution, the seriousness of sin, the divine initiative and salvation, the narrative movement of grace, the complex nature of reality, if these things are so, what might be implications for scholarship? And here begins the experimental part. For the social sciences, theories have to be incomplete. Theories have to be uh, have to require addition. If in the social sciences, the solution to human problems are viewed as arising only from a manipulation of the environment. Manipulation of the environment has to be part of this solution to human problems. But true solution to genuine human problems must involve attention to the moral state of humanity as well as to human circumstances. Humans are defined as moral creatures by the coloration of sin and good social science is always going to pay attention to intrinsic moral nature as well as extrinsic material influence. Visions of humanity that begin with human innocence, whether Rousseau, Marx, rational choice capitalism, will never be fully adequate and faithfully true in describing social reality. Now, they may actually, of course, be provisionally true and true about parts of human reality and also necessary to explain parts of human reality. But approaches to society, approaches to politics that act as if there is nothing intrinsically moral that bears upon a better future for humanity are inadequate theories. May try it. Second one. Whether in the social sciences of the humanities, synchronic or point-in-time analyses may in fact explain a great deal. But such analyses will not explain the full human situation until they are put to use for the sake of diachronic narration or the movement of events through time. Uh, this, I think, is probably not a, a, a very adventuresome conclusion because uh, almost all of the work that academics do in very specific things, academics realize are done for that very specific thing. And where a point-in-time analysis or where an arrangement of categories analysis is the focus of attention, there certainly is no problem in working heartily on that issue because we know that life is more than just whatever I'm spending most of my days and nights working on. But in the bigger picture, it would seem for a Christian person to tend to the belief that if we think at the heart of the whole human story is the drama of redemption, the drama of redemption, then scholarship about humanity must in some form reflect the narrative of God's saving work in Christ. Beginning, middle, and end. Well, I'm a complete amateur on Western music, but I like it. So let me say something about Western forms of music. And certainly in the West, notions of development, notions of 
resolution or culturally specific. But I think I would like to say, on the basis of traditional atonement theology, that in the West at least, musical development is more satisfying when it culminates in resolution than when it intentionally leaves an open-ended postponement of resolution. Now, many of you will just, a few of you, I'm sure, will just recognize, this guy likes Bach, he doesn't like Wagner. (laughs) It's true. I think I know why. That was very inadequate. I expect to be chastised if I don't talk the whole time here. Fourth, for for artistic expression, I come back to narrative as basic to human artistic expression, but narrative with complexity and mystery. The best narratives cannot be simple narratives, like movies that end with a car chase or a gunfight. These might be exciting to the male people watching the movies, but they're not narratively complex and therefore unreal. Neither can the Beth's narratives be Manichaean, where it's good guys and bad guys. Because the narrative of redemption is not about all good here and all bad there. I don't think it's possible for the best narratives to be simply nihilistic, where the point is to simply enact the futility of human existence. One stage in my life I was a and probably still am a great fan of the novels of Thomas Hardy. But even though I think I would say in terms of literary judgment, Jude the Obscure and Tess of the D'Urbervilles are in some ways better novels. They're not as true novels as Hardy's Under the Greenwood Tree, which nobody reads, but actually deals with the human condition more complexly than the great novels. The best narratives from this angle will be morally complex, as in fact the great enduring tragedies, comedies, and novels regularly are. Oedipus Rex, King Lear, Paradise Lost, Crime and Punishment, and certainly one of my favorites, The Lord of the Rings, which ends with the hero so badly damaged He can never recover in this life. Morally complex narratives are more satisfying, I'm suggesting, because in terms of atonement theology, they are truer to life. Fifth, atonement theology speaks to the relationship of individuals to community. At least in Western cultures, there has to be a certain stress on the individual for human institutions to function well. My sin put Christ on the cross. For me, he died. But theories of home or economics or society or the state that defer completely to the individual have to be inadequate. Principles of individualism are necessary to check the excesses of groups, national groups, ethnic groups, tribal groups, ideological groups, racial groups. But humans can be desperately sinful in groups as well as by themselves. 
And in light of atonement theology, it's ultimately correct for individuals to see themselves as constituent members of communities, as well as individuals standing for themselves. Atonement theology pushes toward understanding that individuals can stand in for others and must stand in for others. Corporate entities, in this broad sense, really do deserve to be treated as individuals and in many cases is more important than individuals. One of the interesting developments in my own historical work in recent years has been to study the um, debates using the Bible for and against slavery from 1830 to 1865. And what's clear in these debates is that the biblical defense of slavery had problems. They're easier to see now than they were in 1840, but it had problems. But all of you are Bible readers, and you know how simple it is, particularly in a democratic culture, where you're encouraged to read for yourself how easy it is to defend slavery. Just open up the book of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and see Moses, the lawgiver of the Lord, telling Israelites how they may enslave their enemies. Or you open up the, the uh, New Testament to the book of Philemon and you, you see Paul returning a slave. Now, of course, he returns him with some interesting instructions to the slave owner. But Paul does not take this opportunity to say slavery as an institution violates human dignity, as I, I certainly would be tempted to, to say. The great weakness of the pro-slavery Bible argument in the antebellum period was recognized only partially and the, the great weakness was that Bible slavery was mostly slavery of Caucasians so that the, the racial element dropped out of American discussions and because the racial element dropped out the southern critique of the north also has dropped out of American society so the, the pro-slavery critique of northern society we don't pay attention to because no one really wants to defend the pro-slavery Bible defense. But with the southern Bible defense of slavery was also a southern critique of runaway northern individualism. The constant argument was that slaves are treated better than factory workers. Um, that's, that's not a good argument. I dare say, however, it sounds better today in March 2009 than two years ago in March 2007. Because the critique was not entirely about slavery, the critique was about conceiving of a social order as the aggregate of individuals, which the South accused the North of doing, as opposed to a social order thinking about natural, enduring communal bonds among people. That, it seems to me, was a legitimate matter to be raised. And that kind of criticism seems to me to stand uh, related in a positive way to Christian, at least evangelical Protestants' theories of the atonement. There's a wonderful ambiguity in, in the English translation of the Bible where we read that Christ died for you. And of course, the you can be singular or plural. And this verbal ambiguity is ideal for expressing the basic reality of human community 
in the drama of salvation. So I'm suggesting that faithful Christian scholarship will also be attuned to communal, to the communal character of human reality. Uh, I, again, just to restate the previous point, for the physical sciences, I don't think there's as much payoff, but I, I will, I'm going to stop with enough time so I can be filled in on how the atonement might actually be a beginning point for people in animal husbandry, say. Uh, I don't, well, I'll be just curious to see what anyone has to say. But in, in, other, in other domains, in general, the physical science study what happens in nature. Most other forms of learning study directly what happened in the human community or how contemporary life has been shaped by what happened in the past. This the question was raised at the, uh, uh, after the talk yesterday about miracles. And I, I do think, while it's not an easy matter at all to talk about miracles in a highly scientific culture such as we have, there really is a category difference. If you define what you're doing as understanding the regularities in the natural world and the proposal is made that there's a category of non-regular events that needs to be evaluated, not in the absence of evidence, but with different controlling parameters in how evidence is put to use. But then the last thing I think I'd say uh, as flowing from a, a Christian understanding of atonement is that Humanity is not, cannot be treated as morally self-sufficient. And therefore, theories, narratives, artistic creations, and scholarship that stress in some manner the presence of grace as a major element in human existence, these forms will be actually truer to experience, truer to life, than forms that do not. So if we define grace to mean that individuals and groups often receive for their good, what they do not deserve to receive, those sorts of awarenesses or emphases will reflect at least in some ways, some elements of what's at the heart of Christian faith. Secular terms, we might think, speak of fortune or luck, but Christian scholars holding to the reality of grace are in better position to understand some of the really important sources of human flourishing which are attributes, characters, wealth, resources, abilities that come to us with no effort on our own. That's uh, where the experiment sits at this moment, and uh, I claim it only as an experiment, although one that I'm increasingly taking seriously. And now, before I can't speak, I'm going to stop speaking and ask you to say what you think about such a proposal.